Hello, everyone, and welcome to the third episode of our podcast, the Pythian School of Futures. And today's episode will be structured around the topic of power and the subject of power, which actually is connected very much to the subject of the work that is meant to be presented in Avto called the Power Cards. And although I would not talk a lot about the Power Cards themselves, as the project will be better witnessed in the space, and we will be inviting you to check it up rather already being produced. What is very important to understand about this project is the context around it, the context that relates to the concept of power, to the subject of what is power, and to any other important satellite orbiting this question issues. So that's what our episode today will be devoted to. So without the further ado, let's dive into it. So first of all, the question of the nature of power is outstandingly important question for Avenir Institute. And Avenir Institute was commencing and launched basically its existence through approaching this important question of what exactly power is and how power is related to art, how power is related to politics and how power is related to all the other issues of the in the age of men, basically in our uh, anthropological society that is very much structured around the passions and desires of us being represented and this perpetual struggle for control, perpetual struggle for defining what is the normal, and as well as, as we discussed in the first episode, perpetual struggle for defining the future. So defining-wise, we look at power in Avenue Institute as you would look actually at art. We look at it as energy. And uh, many of you probably aware, especially those who are studying and looking into the concept of art, about the concept of art from the perspective of that aura, that invisible force that surrounds the original works of art. And that idea was firstly expressed by the art critic and um, philosopher Walter Benjamin, who was speaking about the aura of the original artwork in the context of his seminal essay, uh, The Work of Art in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction. So art from that perspective is in a very, very convenient door to enter in order to understand what we understand, what we approach and what we basically analyze in that word power when we use it. And exactly for that reason, the subjects of art and power are very much intertwined in the work of the Avenue Institute. So in the relation of art, aura is that attraction, that energy that the original artwork produces, emanates and makes the work original, makes the work attractive and makes the work individual as well and makes it attractive for someone who wants to purchase it or someone who wants to collect it or for the public that wants to consume it through engagement with this original artwork, not with its reproduction, not with a postcard or the image, for example, or reproduction. But that's exactly the point of originality of art is very much important in understanding what that aura is. So in the context of aura, the parallel, basically, idea that we propose in analyzing political power is something that we call plasma. 
Uh, so aura, if aura is basically the energy that surrounds the original artwork, plasma is the energy that surrounds the object, the institution, or a particular person who emanates political power and who actually represents the center of gravity in power. You probably witnessed some at some point in life or definitely seen it through a TV screen, that sheer sort of sense of presence of someone who actually possesses political power when they enter the room. For example, if you are in the room with the boss of the company or with a teacher that teaches a course to a class or with someone who basically requires attention to be paid from anyone else around them, this person is captivating the attention of everyone surrounding the person at that particular moment. And that attention that is being invested, those gazes of the people that are focused on the person, be it, for example, again, the teacher in a primary school or a local politician, or a boss of the business company, or a president of the country, or a king, or a queen, and so on. Those gazes that focused on that person, this sort of legitimation of the position of that person is exactly the plasma that this person emanates in the comparison with the work of art. So basically, the question that is quite often asked, for example, by people who listen to my lectures, or ask me about my background, because my background, as I was saying about that before, is in political science and in art, is how art and politics are connected, or how I made this transition from art into politics. And that's exactly the answer. I would say that the answer is that those two mediums of art and politics are very much the sides of the same coin from my perspective. They are speaking about that, and they are surrounded by and centered around that very specific undefinable energy that is called in art aura, the aura of original work of art, and which I call in politics plasma, that energy that surrounds the institution or a person or anything else basically that accumulates this attention that we pay to this institution. I'll give you another example in order to understand what is aura and what is plasma and how they are intertwined. For example, Many of us, when we enter a specific building of importance for the country, for example, some symbolic building of importance, um, in the United States, for example, Capitol Hill, or in the European Union, the European Parliament, or in United Kingdom, the Westminster Abbey, or any other symbol, basically this cultural symbol, is sort of almost automatically invites you to take a picture of it or to somehow memorize that moment why you want to be there. And often those buildings, for example, the European Parliament, is not really specifically aesthetically interesting or not specifically different from European Parliament, whoever of you seen it, person or whoever seen a picture of it, I invite you to have a look at it. It's basically looking like any other office building. It's not really attractive in any form or way, but people are taking selfies in front of it. People are taking pictures of it. People want to be captured on its background, even on the background of just words that say European Commission, European Parliament. Basically what people do selfies with at this moment, they do selfie with sort of, uh, you could say, a magnetic field <laughs> that is emanated by that building. And it sounds ridiculous to some extent, but everybody does it basically because everybody knows that this particular institution possesses the power to define how normal 
in our societies is being formulated and how it's being changed. And everybody understands that these particular institutions are the centers that make decisions about our everyday life. The same, in parallel, I would make an example of that power, basically, and that is emanated through aura, basically, that I was referring to before in arts. But actually, funnily enough, and I was speaking about that specifically as the two-sided coin, remember? Aura and aura and plasma. So if you, for example, approach Mona Lisa painting in Louvre, basically, the painting itself is covered by the bulletproof glass and is separated from the viewers by the bar. You cannot really approach the painting closer than three meters. And because of the sheer amount of crowds that pass by that room all the time, you can't really see the painting as such. But still, people take a picture of it. And in that sort of sense, this is exactly, I think, a brilliant example of how aura, because definitely the reason why Mona Lisa is so important, basically, is the the fact that it's a very outstandingly special work in the oeuvre of uh, Leonardo da Vinci. But basically how we perceive and consume the work right now, what is being consumed is the aura of that work that converted into plasma, into that power that basically attracts people to take pictures of it and completely disorients basically the viewers from the aesthetic characteristics or aesthetic value of the work. Aesthetic value of that work becomes secondary, just like a European Commission building, basically, or European Parliament building that is not really aesthetic as such, but it does emanate plasma, it does emanate attraction, it does emanate this this sort of a momentum, uh, a bit again, uh, like I already made this little comparison to the electromagnetic field. It's something invisible. It's something that is really hard to formulate, but it's there. Everybody understands that it's there. It's like that tension in the room just before the conflict when, as British people sometimes say, you can cut it with a knife, something through, you can cut through the air with a knife, feeling that tension. So that's exactly what plasma is. And that plasma is having the potentiality and having the resources and possibilities to redivert and reshape, basically, the human political relations between themselves. Because people fought wars over, for example, specific paintings that were emanating plasma. Or people fight wars and brothers kill brothers for political institutions as well, because they, they feel that power that, again, is not in any way expressible in a practical terms. It could be symbolized in something, but it could never be materially perceived. It's only something that exists and that's being reproduced through a belief and through investment of the attention into it. And that's exactly the definition of, again, it's a bit of a large definition and it's not really one sentence defined, but that is important, that analysis is very important in order to arrive to a space where we can speak about power as a sort of commonplace a pool of energy, basically, that's not only present in politics and not only present in a particular situations with which we associate in vernacular culture, political power. That power present everywhere, from families to workplaces to everyday situations, that power of attention that is paid to, for example, a ticket seller on the train station. And this micro little power is often being abused by the people who possess it. 
it being abused on the level of basically national securities or national leaders and the kings, and it's being abused in the everyday environment and on the family level by the family members against other family members, for example, where the conflict is being created through a distribution of that plasma and through accumulation of the plasma within this social situation by a particular agent and a particular person or institution that then redirect the center of gravity of conversation about power and centers it around himself or herself, for example. So that's two-faced nature of power and that two-faced form of power and art is in the center, basically, of the inquiry of Avenir Institute about the nature, aesthetics, and the futures of political power. What political, what vessels political power would be located in? How those vessels will transform? What institutions of the future power would look like? How they will redistribute power? How we will, they will help us to negotiate those centers of gravity of the attention? Because the definition of democracy from that perspective of the plasmatic, basically, definition of power means that in democracy, that attention resource, that center of focus, of public focus, can be anywhere, would be the definition of democracy from the plasmatic perspective. In democracy, everyone shares that pool of plasma. Everyone can enter that space and anyone, depending on the necessity and depending on the ambition, should have access to this energy field, let's say. So speaking about, in that sense, plasma within the political communities can be mined and who is having the access to this minefield of plasma defines how open society is from that perspective. So, for example, if you take autocratic societies, like Russian society, for example, that I'm very familiar with, the center of plasma is definitely located within a very particular physical body, you could say, from the representation of the particular political leader who is basically arranging the magnetic field around himself. I, of course, speak about Vladimir Putin. Or if you take, for example, absolute monarchies, it's the same situation. If you take the Saudi Arabia or you take other absolute regimes where the, the center of power is very directly basically indicated and vectored to all the other institutions around the society, the definition in that sense becomes easier for the power. Power is there, basically. But if you take the more democratic political systems, for example, you take the United Kingdom, which is the monarchy, basically, where the country has several names. There is the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. There is Great Britain. There is England. There are countries inside of the sovereign state. There is a parliament. There is unwritten constitution. There is court. At the same time, the crown estates own everything. It's so messy, basically, that no one really understands where power is in the first place. And for that reason, because you don't really understand where this mine of plasma and when this mine of political power exists, more people can have access to it. And as soon as, for example, there is a crisis, societal crisis happens to some extent, or there is something coming out that is necessary somewhat to address the question of renegotiation of what normal will be after that crisis. Basically, we are going to this pool of power and we are starting this negotiation by mining the aura and by restructuring institutions in accordance to the necessity. And for example, again, if crisis like Corona, for example, coronavirus pandemic is happening in Russia, everybody looks in the center of power, everybody looks in Kremlin and everybody looks at Putin. But when something like that happens, for example, in the United Kingdom, the question and the address basically 
of the resolution of that issue becomes indeed what is called res publica. It becomes the public issue because anyone can basically express their opinion on the subject. And as well as there is a number of institutions that have an informed opinion on the subject as well. So therefore, the negotiation about the future order becomes more open and the resolution of this negotiation, therefore, is not known to anyone participating in it, making this process more democratic. So while I was explaining that definition of plasma from the perspective of this research that we are developing in the Institute, I already touched upon two main categories that are very important for understanding of political power and two characteristics that are important in the context of analysis of political power. First of these categories is topology of political power from the word topos, place in Greece, in Greek, ancient Greek. So it's where the power is located, basically. And from the perspective of topology, of the political power. Again, we already made an example of the institutions, a parliament or specific symbol, like in, in for example, theological regime, it could be a church or, or some specific institution that plays a very important role in defining what power is. There is a very much personal attitude to the topology of power, to the topos, to the place where power is located. So, for example, power could be located within, in that sense, of Vladimir Putin or the king of Saudi Arabia. And therefore, topology could be understood as, a, as something that could be located within a person or, within, or rather within the institution. And that also, in very many ways, finds what is a political regime that we're talking about. For example, in the context, again, of the United Kingdom, the topos of power is a complicated issue because it's formally located, the place of power is formally the monarchy, the queen, but at the same time, the queen does really make any day-to-day decisions and there is a tradition of non-involvement of the monarchy in the everyday management of the country and as well there are constitutional restrictions for the monarchy to enter there. So therefore to understand where power is within this particular situation is not really possible. It's it's always the the, the power basically, the topology of power within the democracy and the location of that mine of plasma is unknown to basically to everyone. It's something that is always being drifting. That's something that basically changes the location from time to time in the space of the political context. While topology of power in more restricted autocratic regimes is very clear. For example, we probably all remember those quite staggering images of toppling down the monuments of Saddam Hussein when the uh, Americans invaded Iraq. And those toppling downs of the statues were specifically filmed by the American military, for example, and specifically documented, not only in a mature way, basically by the onlookers, but also professionally. And there is a reason for that, because the topology of power, the topos of power in Iraq, before the Americans were entering, was located and placed in specific space, it was Baghdad, within the specific character, Saddam Hussein. So therefore, all the 
representations of that person, including his own biological being, basically capturing him was ending the war. So basically you captured the source of plasma in that country. So therefore decapitating the source of plasma, you dislocating power. You could also compare it to releasing genie from the bottle. Basically in autocratic regimes, the genie is in a very, very tiny bottle. <laughs> that bottle could be concealed within a little pocket. While within the democratic regimes, why they again, they are proven to be more stable and more complicated to deal with by just beheading them, for example, like it was done, for example, by the US military in the Iraq, is that uh, the bottle in the United Kingdom is probably of the size of half of the country. It's really complicated to uncork that bottle or even to, to somewhat engage with it. It's a bit too heavy and a bit too complicated and large. So the topology of power, the topology of that plasma, therefore, plays an important role in understanding of the uh, space of negotiation, basically, of the for the future of the politics and future of power in that space. Then, of course, the other characteristics of the topology are the geography of power. So, for example, if we speak about the notion of geopolitics, we are speaking about the topology of the global power as it's located in the current agenda of the perception of where power is. So we obviously still live in unipolar regime where the United States possesses this position of the main topos of the global power, is the main place of power. If for that particular reason we are all frozen in front of the TV screens when the whole show of the American election is going through on, or everyone is following Donald Trump on Twitter, because he's not only the president of the United States in that sense. Whenever you are not a citizen of the United States, basically, in the contemporary world, you are in a way and non-privileged citizen of it, because we live in the space of the hegemony of the, this particular actor and the topos of power is mostly located there. So again, we could continue more and more unpacking the topology of power, but that's not the focus of this episode. What we're gonna speak in the end is about this particular project, the power cards that, that will be presented later. And another, characteristic of power that is important for that game and in general understanding of the political power, because that's exactly what game is about, is the typology of power, is basically the types of power, or typos, another word borrowed from the ancient Greek. The types of power, basically, is the second characteristic thanks to which we could analyze that beast of the political power, that complicated issue of invisible magnetic field energy that could be located in different places, but also uh, basically manifest itself differently. And that's exactly what types of power are about. It's the form of manifestation of political power by itself. And those form of manifestation also would be familiar to many of you to hear. So we all know about the, for example, formal or informal power. So when the power is very much directly expressed on the paper and when someone, for example, a boss within the corporation or a teacher in the room has a mandate, basically a formal mandate to exercise power. The teacher has a mandate, for example, to, I don't know, not allow pupil to go out to the bathroom during the class. It is a form of power and it is a type of power that the teacher could exercise basically on the student during the class. Then another type, for example, that is important to remember and important for the power cards game is the type of the visibility of power, basically. It's the power that is 
perceived and power that is actually hidden. And the hidden power is the subject of the obsession, basically, of many conspiracy theorists in general, who are always searching for the hidden source of power, Illuminati or some sort of a proto-George Soros together with Bill Gates that want to vaccinate us all with the chips. And those sort of a little bit insane theories are coming exactly from the presence and the idea of the hidden power that exists in the heads of everyone. Because the perceived power as such is often being not basically real in that sort of form. It's not being actually activated. It's the power that is supposedly exists within the institution or within the person, but does not seem to be manifested, basically. And for that reason, exactly the idea of hidden power sort of rebalances the approach to the uh, presence of the perceived power. Then the category of soft and hard power is another important element of the typology of the political power. So when the hard power, it's pretty clearly expressed through, for example, military engagement or a particular financial resources or natural resources that could be owned by a state and that hard power exactly something that is tangible basically something the particular resources like for example army or or missiles or technologies that are owned by either the state but sometimes in some cases it's a hard power of a corporations for example if you take amazon or you take apple at the moment as companies they actually possess quite a lot of hard power and that hard power is the power over the systems that they provide to the society and from which society becomes dependent upon without amazon for example many of the small businesses in some of the countries even to some extent are not able to sustain the infrastructure without apple if apple for example would push some sort of a red button that will switch off all the operational systems that are created all the infrastructure basically that apple created it will uh, significantly disrupt the whole world it's basically an emanation of a pretty much of a direct power direct heart power and many people would not be able to connect to one another. Some hospitals would be off because they dependent on those electronic systems being run in their inside. So what is important to understand in there that hard power is not only the feature of things like army or uh, military equipment. The hard power is basically any tangible infrastructure that is defining how we are perceiving and understanding the world around us, how we are basically consuming the world around us. You could say it's glasses, it's lenses, let's say, that are on our very blind eyes. Sort of, if you would imagine yourself as a person with very bad sight, basically my hard power in that sense as a, per a person of that kind is my glasses, because without them, I would not be able to see. So it's the same resource applies to the uh, definition of the hard power. And of course, beyond that, the hard power is the particular tool, like, again, like a missile or uh, on a micro level, it's a knife or any other tool or a hammer, for example, something that you would use in order to actualize your agency, the agency of your power, basically to do something, to build a house or to rob someone or to, or to do something in any possible actionable way. 
while the soft power basically is the power of perception. It's the power that is not exactly definable. That's the difference between the two. For example, the European Union is a great example of the uh, agent that possesses quite an outstanding soft power. Maybe some of you attended those little European Commission or European Union representation offices that are located all around the world normally at the embassy of the European European institutions to this particular country or in the European Union at the so-called EU info points where you can for free pick up a European flag or you can pick up a pin with the European flag or a little books of the uh, European Commission and those little basically souvenirs that look very harmless and look like something that is just people are assembling and taking and they all are investment into the soft power of the European Union and making European Union attractive. Maybe we don't remember it already now after the refugee crisis and so many other challenges through which the European Union went through in the last decade. But just 10 years ago, the queue of the countries that were standing at the door of European Union and knocking that door harshly in order to enter the European Union was really large. African countries were hoping, and still some of them are hoping, to associate themselves somehow with the European Union and become an associate member or somewhat to sign something that would make them associated with the Union. And not for the particular hard power reason. They just want to be associated with it just because the European Union is cool. And this coolness of the European Union geopolitical field is exactly the consequence of the attraction that is created this typology of power, this type of power that the European Union possesses, which is the soft power of the European Union. For another example that I could give is the United States, also outstanding soft power that is present and that is consumed every day, basically. It's the idea of the American dream, it's the American movies, it's the Hollywood, it's this idea of possibility of achieving your your dream within this particular structure of behavior, basically. So if you will apply on yourself these ideological lenses, you will succeed as these people. And that's exactly the soft power of the United States to be able to transform the way we think about success, the way we think about our family, the way we think about things we want to do in the future. That's the soft power that is typologically defining the form of that, again, mining quarry of plasma that we're talking about today. I just dipped a little bit in different types and topuses of the political, topoi, sorry, in Greek, of the political power, but you get the drifts, basically. These are two major characteristics with which we approach this mining plasma exercise that is a political power for Avenir Institute. So where game enters in this situation? So we see this plasmatic center of power production as being characterized and being structured on two main premises. First premise of power is myth. You probably know perfectly well that every nation state has a national myth for example. There is a sort of an idea of the founder of that state or some specific, almost miraculous, in many cases, event 
that launched the existence of that state. And that is the national myth or the myth of power. The same as there is a myth in every family, basically. There is a myth that my grand-grandmother ran away from somewhere and started our family. And without that particular miraculous, I don't know, escape, for example, of my grandmother from concentration camps or something like that, my family would have never existed. This is also a myth. Myth is not meant in here and obligatory is not something that is fictional, basically. Myth could be based on the real events, but those real events within that myth of power are always mythologized. Those real events are always amplified. My grandmother is always having a, some special thing that she had never actually had in her real life. But over the time of the family history, the components to that myth were just added in order to make it more powerful once again. The, those aesthetic components and those miraculous elements that are added to the myth becoming more and more impactful as soon as they grow around the real story, even the story of the real, as a crust, basically, creating that sort of mass that makes the myth so powerful. So any country you take, even, even the countries that are so supposedly based on the secular myth, for example, the United States of America, the signing of the Declaration of Independence is approached by Americans as a sort of a miraculous deed to some extent. If you watched some of the debates, for example, of American candidates, they always debate on the background of the, the Declaration of Independence being printed as a wall print somewhat. And the way the event is taught as well in the schools Although it's taught as a historical event, it's taught with an immense amount of different mythological elements of the, the what exactly the founding fathers thought, how exactly founding fathers were thinking about the constitution. So it's something that actually no historian could know in the first place. But those details are being mythologized in order to emphasize the importance of the and the uniqueness of that moment. And the same goes, for example, to the very theological and very miraculous myth as well. Take Israel and take the uh, Japanese, for example, myth. Take the myth of the creation of the Japanese empire from the sun and the emperors in Japan are still considered to be the successors of the sun, in a way. The sun god is the source of the Japanese imperial power. And it's written in the books and it's written in the constitution and it's how it's taught in schools as well, that story. From where the ritual and reverence towards that state power in Japan and that strong tradition is continuing to be growing and continuing to be respected by all the generation of Japanese, including the generations of now, basically, who are you know, playing computer games and, and traveling all around the world and see that this probably the whole sun story is maybe not that realistic but still that sun story plays a very very important role in identity so myth provides this basis for the plasmatic mind <laughs> to somewhat perpetually reproduce the energy of that plasma it's sort of like the perpetual engine that needs to be fed always with a additional elements of interpretation it always needs to be written about the books for example taking another case in the united kingdom you have i don't know how many actually biographies of elizabeth the first or 
Winston Churchill are being produced in this country every year. And it's not that there is something particularly new to say about the Winston Churchill or Elizabeth I. They're being produced as they are being mined by historians because their characters have this mythological power and they want to get a piece of that power, even by repeating the same narrative over and over again. And of course, every time they repeat this narrative a little bit, they change a little detail or they add something else or they add another theory in order to make their book more unique. And that all leads basically to a further growth of that crust around the myth of this particular person or this particular nation. So that's the first component of the that plasmatic mind, the power or the myth. And the second component is actually the game. And that's where we come to the name of this episode, the power cards, the power card game, basically. The game and the gamification of politics plays as important role in that whole plasmatic mine of political power as the myth that is emanating the energy. Because as soon as you produce that energy, you need to have some sort of a form of engaging with it. And that form of engaging with this energy is coming from creating the institution that basically gamify our life. What is an election if it's not a game, for example? Again, if you look at the narration of the American elections, with all the numbers that coming in, the number of electors that are being sent to vote for the president of the United States, all the percentages and so on, the idea of a winner and a loser always in politics, the, uh, all the possible rules that are being established within the constitutions or within the specific laws, the courts, again, the Supreme Courts that are changing those rules, basically. And the whole obsession, by the way, with games of the national stature, for example, games like football or games like Olympic games in, in themselves and so on, they are full of power in themselves. They are full of power not because the game itself somewhat emanates something. This game has no myth in itself. But the game is becoming popular because it imitates the political game in itself. And it allows, for example, to football fans that might know nothing about politics around themselves, but they invest all that energy of the political game, basically, that is aesthetically for them not interesting. They invest it into this hollow aesthetics of soccer, for example, or basketball or whatever is the particular subject of interest in there. But the power of the game as the power of the myth is the another part in that triangle. So, you know, I would paint it as the Avenue Institute triangle. And that's actually one of the reasons why the symbol of Avenue Institute is a triangle. It's the game, it's the myth, and it's the power. These are three components. Power as the plasma, basically. I would put here an equal mark, power to plasma. So those three components combine this triangle that is the perpetual engine that produces our society, produces our society's idea of present, our society's idea of the past, and our society's idea of the future. And this triangle and this methodology of analyzing political power in, in that sense is in the core of the power game that Ivanir Institute works on already for quite some time. And as you could imagine, it's not a very easy project to figure out. It's not a very easy metaphor to establish because the game, how it will be looking like, takes cues and the gamification mechanisms from different games that possess power. Uh, among them, for example, are games like chess, games like checkers, 
um, but also card games. And that's why it's power cards. But most importantly, it's the games like Tarot that are very important. And here I would like to focus on another, on the last theoretical heavy issue for today. It's the necessity to understand the difference between different games conceptually. And because the politics, as it's being gamified with an American example, over the last around 100 years become very, very quantified. The politics already um, was making this example of the number of the electors of those percentages in politics. So basically the politics started to look more and more like some sort of calculable game that you could really predict the outcome of. You could predict, for example, who would win the election by just looking at the chart with numbers or just by assessing the exit polls or just by actually projecting in the future specific data. You basically can mine data instead of mining plasma. And from the perspective of Avenir Institute and mine, this is the very, very big contemporary misconception about what power is and how power works because of this idea and desire to predict and to know the outcome on the basis of calculation came to politics through the secularization of society and the advancement of the science in the sciences. Sciences like chemistry, physics, math, but politics is not that kind of science. And that's unfortunately a very big problem with which actually most of the universities globally now are dealing with. I am poor, by training myself, I am a political scientist. And to be honest, I, I find it term appalling myself. I'm not, I cannot be political scientist because the politics is not the science. Politics is a crafty game. Politics is a game that is not in any way having a particular predictable outcome until the last card is pulled out of the sleeve of one of the players. <laughs> so basically, Politics is a sort of a game like tarot. It's an interpretative game. It's a game where you can't really assess the winner on the basis of something very mathematically presumed. So from that perspective, I fundamentally disagree in with comparison of politics to a chess game, for example, because politics is much more complicated and much more messy than a chess. In a way, for example, making a very particular here case, Hillary Clinton, and Donald Trump elections were exactly that clash of understanding from my perspective of, of the fundamental essence of politics as a game, where Hillary Clinton relied on the numbers and relied on the particular political scientific agenda of prediction that she would win. And you would remember that the bets on the night of election almost were giving her 80% chance, sometimes 90% chance of winning, and Trump was gaining the remaining 20 to 10%, mathematically speaking. But basically, Hillary Clinton using that math and taking again, and here I'm mixing these two metaphors of the chessboard and the American election. So imagine that the Hillary Clinton in that situation was a grossmaster. She was sort of a trained chess player that was sitting at the boards and was 100% sure in her strategies. She was memorizing all the strategies of movement, predictably, basically bringing to the outcome of the win in the end in her mind. And she was assured in that sort of sense that she would win because she's a good chess player. Little that she knew that she played not with another chess player. She played with Pigeon on that chessboard. So imagine yourself sitting and playing chess with a pigeon. 
you're making the move with your pawn and the pigeon is just, you know, shits on the boards and just, you know, models all the figures and just flies away from the board. And the randomness of the outcome of that sort of a chess match with a pigeon, for example, and again, I'm a bit sorry for, especially to the Trump supporters for such an analogy, but it's basically the whole point that I'm trying to make in here that you could play chess with someone who's a bad chess player, but it's not about the chess in the end. This whole chess match is focused on. The end of this chess match, basically, is someone being pronounced winner after the process of the game is over and it influences all the context around. The chess match is about the cash prize, it's about the fame, it's about all these other things that come out outside of this game, to which the only thing that is important basically is who is pronounced the winner, but it's not important how. And the winner also is interpreted rather than announced. And that's where the tarot cards, for example, are more interesting as a game in this way, because the game with not a very particular outcome. Another example I would make in here, you probably played games like Mafia or Witch Hunt, where you have a, a group of people trying to identify some sort of a perpetrator among them who knows their role, and then they are diplomatically playing their role and they're trying to hide their identity in order to announce it in the last moment. and. This actually game like Mafia is much closer to how the real politics look like, the real political games look like. And the prediction, therefore, a mathematical assessment here is something that is extremely complicated in a sense that the game is completely based on the emotional and uh, acting abilities of the players. And this is a very important component within the political games. Again, needless to say, I don't want to say that mathematics is unimportant. Mathematics is exactly that is in politics, in those particular packs that dealing with quantifiable power, with a power that is about resources, that is about very particular material things, that hard power that we were talking about before. But the hard power is often completely neglects the importance of the soft power. And these are, like in the case of aura and plasma, these are two sides of one coin. These are two sides that don't exist with one another. Emotional parts an emotional state of politics is as important as a rational one. And as soon as you pretend that you rationalize the emotion in politics, you end up being Hillary Clinton, basically a lady who actually was meant to win by everyone. But because of the neglect to this emotional component of the address that she was dealing with, miscalculate the strategy to the extent that the emotional component of the power of that cocktail of plasma redefined the winning board in the end. So the power game that Avenue Institute is developing and hopes to show enough to as soon as it will be possible is the game that's aesthetically looking like tarot cards. And some of you maybe saw them or even uh, played around with them. So it's the power game is the game of narratology. It's the story that's being told while the cards are being laid down. And Avenue Institute puts exactly all of those, we basically, within the research, put all of those elements of analysis of political power, the typologies of power, the topologies of power, the different types of the minds of plasma. We are translating them in a form of the figures, mythological figures, and here we're approaching the triangle that I was talking about, of the myth of the plasma 
end of the game. So the mythological figures are depicted on those cards. And because, again, of me being a classicist, those figures are coming mostly from the Greek mythology because it's just an, a, a quite a convenient, you could say, medium to talk about, mythologize something that is in mostly... Western society is very much present sculpturally in any other form everywhere in the museums and on the streets. But we chose specifically for those Greek figures from the Greek mythology. And then the gaming component is borrowed in part from the tarot cards and partly from other card games as well, but also from some of the board games and from some of the games that are similar to Mafia. So it's a game within which you are creating a narrative of power and analyzing the ideas about power in order to understand the reality that surrounds us. It's the game that helps to enter that very complicated subject of analysis of political power that more and more often being sent out to someone else, to the so-called experts or to so-called, to the people who are meant to make decisions for us and the people who are supposedly understanding perfectly how that mathematical game works with, operates basically. So the, our purpose with, in creating of the power game is to create the critical tool that helps to analyze the present of political power and the future of the political power as we want to see it. So here it is, and I hope you'll be able to engage with it as soon as it will be presented, and stay tuned for the next episodes. Thank you very much.